Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, June 22nd. Today we have an interview with Sleepwell Capital. He's our friend from Twitter. Uh, that's kind of how we met. He talks a lot about Spotify and we're going to dig into audio, basically the whole audio industry. He's really sort of an expert on Spotify as well. Um, and U-Haul, which is another company he's covered. Uh, you can check out his Substack. We'll probably link it in the show notes. But post-interview, what are we talking about? Yeah, so we're going to be talking about, I see you got a fun crypto one. I'll let you maybe explain that. But I got the Wise direct listing coming in London. That should be a fun topic. Huge fintech company going public. And then what else do I have? Or a list of a thousand beggars of the last four decades. Going to discuss that. And then some of those passive income takes on Twitter, the uh, people that are going to take 50 bucks a month instead of a million dollars. Uh, we might discuss some of the merits and not uh, of that. So should be fun. All right. And then I'll be talking about uh, Titan, which there was sort of a big crash this week. Uh, it's kind of been all over the news uh, and a big name was invested. Uh, so that'll be kind of interesting. And then the Lordstown Motors Mirage continued. There's been some fallout over the EV SPAC uh, with the CEO stepping down. So I'll talk about that. And then there's some kind of unique anecdotal evidence. I've been in, been on vacation in Cabo. So I've got some anecdotals yeah. there. Just like, which is with the, like with the real estate agents from the big short, right? Yes, basically. Uh, but before we get to our interview with Sleepwell, you want to give our sales pitch for seven investing. Yes, we can. You are going to be listening to this on June 22nd. So that is right before the new month is going to drop. We're kind of almost a week out and there's going to be seven new picks. These are highly researched, you know, you get a full researched uh, piece with it and you get a video call and you get continuous updates on these research picks. So it's seven stock picks from seven different advisors across a variety of different industries. And if you want to check it out, uh, you can use our code CCM and get $10 off your first month. Not much else to say. It's a great service. There's Tons no reason reasons. not to. There's no way you could go onto this and not find a new stock for your portfolio. That's, yeah. You know, there's you so much look variety. back over the last, you're getting, this is $7 to look back over the entire last, what, year and mm-hmm. two months if you're just now starting. Plus, it's worth staying with them because exactly. they give all those updates. Um, so whatever style you have, you'll find something for you. Yeah, certainly. All right. Uh, without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, today we are welcomed by Sleepwell Capital. He is a friend from Twitter. We bonded over Spotify. I think we uh, are all shareholders here. So that's kind of how we got to know each other. Uh, And then we've been DMing frequently. Uh, since then. So kind of for starters, how did you get on Twitter and then why the name Sleepwell? Yeah, sure. Thanks for, for having me, guys. And good to get those disclaimers out of the way and not not sound, you know, way too bullish on the <laughs> on the name. But um but yeah, so I've actually been using Twitter for, for for a pretty long time on the personal side. I think it's 
back in 2009, I got in it and I had a bunch of friends in there and just kind of on and off since then I have been using it. Um, I think maybe four years ago or so, I kind of stumbled upon Fintwit as I, you know, became more and more interested in, in investing. Um, you know, I'd never really used it as, um, you know, as, as someone who was putting out content from, from my personal account. Um, and, but it was enjoying a lot of the content that was, uh, that was out there. Eventually I, I realized I, you know, I had sort of the, the potential to, to put out content that people were, were interested in after kind of testing it out a little bit, but realized I didn't really have the right audience. And obviously after, you know, seeing the, the popularity of certain anonymous accounts, I remember Bluegrass Capital was a, was a big one back then. Um, I just basically replicated that, that strategy and made my own, my own account. Um, the way, the way that I came about Sleepwell is, I think it was, you know, just reading a lot about as much as you could about Buffett back, back when you're trying to learn as much as you can about investing. And obviously most people kind of stumble upon it through him. There was a quote from him back in the eighties where, where he was talking about Gillette and he said that he would sleep well at night because he knew that billions of men would grow a beard overnight and sort of wake up to shave, right? So that kind of struck a chord with me. And, and I don't know, as, as I kind of started developing my own investment style, it became something that I kept coming back with, you know, coming back to. And eventually I just decided to choose it as my, as my anonymous account name. Yeah. And it seems it's the anonymous Twitter account. It seems like a unique existence, but there are some advantages. You can really just, you know, speak your mind. Yeah, exactly. It's it, it's kind of odd, and I mean, when I started, and and I really only started in in, in January. I, I remember I I was kind of testing it out because you never know who you're really talking to, and it's weird when you don't have that many followers in in yeah. the beginning. And I remember Value Terminal, who who's a who's a friend on Twitter as well. I think she tweeted out something like, "If you have less than a thousand followers, like tell us something about yourself." and and we'll, we'll give you a hand. And I, that was like my first bump. I put something in there and I got like 200 followers in, in, in a couple of days. And I was impressed by that. And, you know, you kind of, yeah, you just kind of go and, 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 and I think finding your voice is, is really important, but it, it does have its advantages to kind of just forget that the fact that people don't know who you are, how old you are, what your background is. It's very meritocratic in that sense. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And then back to your investing style. So how would you describe it? Like, are you, you know, value growth or just whatever? And then how do you manage your personal portfolio? Yeah. So I think the best way to describe my style is first, I, it's two parts. It's it's first, it's it's always evolving, right? Because I guess I've been investing more seriously for, for the last kind of eight years, but it's it's always it's always changing, especially when you're when you're getting started. You got to find what what works best. Best, I think. Right now, I call myself kind of long-term concentrated quality. That's what I've been migrating to kind of more more recently. Um, I started out in the in the traditional kind of value investing camp and and you know trying to buy companies at, at six times earnings, hoping that they get up to nine or ten times earnings and then selling them, but pretty quickly realized that those companies tend to be lower quality and, and they can, they can stay at those multiples for really long times or, or even 
you know, or even go down because because the earnings are are, are going down. So you're you you they just naturally get more expensive as you as you hold them, and it's just you have a lot of headwinds going against you. And you know, sort of that way, I I came about more higher quality companies and and learning about you know obviously Buffett's transition into in, in, into more quality, but then more more recent investors that have. That, that have focused a lot on on not only that but but holding companies through through the very long term right and and for me i guess long term is is really five to ten years is because everyone kind of has their their own definition um but yeah it, i mean another another part of my life that i think influenced a lot of my investment style was um i, I spent a few years working in, in fixed income so you know working in, in credit helps you think about companies in a, in a different ways because you always get to them and you start off with with the question of kind of what can go wrong here right because your your upside is is you get paid and and you get you know you know you get paid back your principal plus your interest but your downside is the company stops paying you and you probably lose 70% right depending on 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 what the recovery is but um, it it's really just an, a very useful additional tool for for equities investors to be able to understand the the other side of the balance sheet and i know if you look at my portfolio you'll you'll see some names that maybe you don't traditionally associate with with like high quality but i became pretty comfortable with them after having looked at their at their bonds for example so as soon as i became comfortable with the liability side and and these were trading at at pretty low multiples and i and i thought the earnings would grow i thought you know it made sense to buy the equity yeah it's interesting it's kind of like I feel like most uh, individual investors kind of overlook the fixed income side, but it seems like it could tell you a lot about a business um, and sort of the quality of it. Yeah. What about, do uh, you want to talk audio? Yeah. Do we want to get into it now? I think, <laughs> uh, I think that's what everyone's waiting for. I'll kick it off with the, I'll kick it off with the first question. It's going to be on, you know, we're going to hit Spotify, but we're going to really hit live audio in general, kind of look at those dynamics because that's a really, fast growing industry right now. And then we're going to talk a little yeah. bit about UMG, the label that is getting spun up and going public. But first question, what's the live audio opportunity for Spotify? And then how are they positioned versus other competitors like Clubhouse and Twitter? And I guess Facebook's getting into the game as well. Yeah. And I mean, I, my sense is we're going to keep seeing more and more of the, of the big tech people, you know, trying to get a piece of that. I think first it's, it's important to, you know, kind of set the ground straight on, on a couple of things. Live audio is, is, is a huge opportunity, right? And there's also the fact that it's, it's really a completely new market, right? There's no, there's no comparison to it besides looking, you know, at radio, which I, I like to think as, as radio as kind of the last domino to fall from the legacy media that hasn't really been struck as much from, from the internet, right? There's literally billions of people that still listen to, to radio every day. And I think with some of the, you know, kind of recent, yeah, trends that we've, that we've seen in the, in the, in the last couple of months, including Clubhouse as really one of the major drivers, because that's kind of when really people started waking up to it. Um, I think it's, it's going to be, again, it's, it, it's going to be an evolving market where, you know, monetization is, is not as clear yet, but it's it, pro- my sense is it's probably much bigger than than people than, than people think, and that probably means there's also 
you know, a decent amount of share for some of these companies to, to take. It's not, it's not necessarily going to be a winner take all market in, in my, in, in my sense, because there's, I mean, think about all the different formats and, and content and sort of categories that there are out there. I, I like to give the example of, of, of Twitter spaces a lot because, you know, especially us that, that spend a lot of time on it. We're, we're sometimes, I think, a little biased to, 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 to spaces because it works so perfectly well for Fintwit, right? Like, it's a very engaged audience that's super interested in learning and, and you have, you know, so many experts that it, I mean, it's just so easy. Whenever one of them starts talking about a subject, it's, it's, it's just really easy to drive the audience that you already have over there, right? But that's, that's just one niche, right? So, I mean, if we, if we turn to, to Spotify, they, they bought Locker Room, right, three months ago, which was a very sports-oriented kind of clubhouse competitor. Uh, this last week, they rebranded it and, and relaunched it as a, a Spotify Green Room. Now, Spotify has a, has a couple of things going, going for them in, in, in live audio, right? I think first, the, the user base is, is massive, right? It's over 350 million uh, monthly actives um, on the, and it's a highly engaged um, user base as well, right? So that's, that's important. But I think you have to also think about, about the supply side because where's the content gonna come from? I mean, Spotify already has very strong and existing relationships with basically every artist in the world, right? Every artist in the, in, in the world really counts for Spotify as their main, um, or at least not main, but one of their biggest sources of, of streaming income, right? So you, you have that as a very natural fit for, call it live online concerts or a listening party or, or a Q&A with your favorite artists. So that's, that's, that's a very big advantage in, in my opinion. But then if you think about the podcasting side, you not only have, I mean, existing podcasters like, like, like yourselves, where if you already have a, a, a big audience in Spotify, it's only going to be natural to sort of go there to, to engage even, even more with them. But you also have exclusives, right? So, I mean, a Joe Rogan, and, you know, hosting a Q&A on, on, on Green Room and selling tickets for it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things you can sort of experiment with. And this exclusive roster has only just kept growing, right? I think the bigger challenge for for this industry that a lot of people have have talked about is the the discovery aspect right because the problem with 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 live audio is is that well obviously it's it, i mean most of the time it's it's not recorded right so you only you you can only listen to what's happening at the right exact moment and it has it has to match your interest right so Spotify is at a great advantage in, in that sense because of, of that supply and, and demand dynamic that I, that I talked about, but also because of their focus on using data to, to really drive that, that discovery, which they've been arguably been able to do pretty successfully on the, on the music side, right? I think there's no, people would, would probably agree on, on, on that side. So I think that's what they're going to try to do both in, in live and in, and in podcasting. Right now, Green Room is its own app, right? Yeah, that's correct. It's basically it's basically locker room rebranded. Like, it's it's not like let's be clear. It's it 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 has a lot of improvements to 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 go. Like, it's not a good app right now. But knowing how fast Spotify has has innovated their products over over the years and the sort of management tracks record there, I I would expect a lot of changes coming 
in the next, you know, in the next couple of months. I mean, we saw it with, we've seen it with podcasting, right? And, and I think that's another important point to make that, that, that is a challenge for, for other companies, especially when, you, when I see, you know, companies like Facebook trying to get into, into audio. Consumer habits are, are super hard to change, right? We, 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 all, we all know that. And I think one advantage that, that Spotify has going for them is that everyone who uses Spotify thinks of Spotify as, a, as an audio app, right? Like you don't have to ch really change their, their habits for, for, for people that are listening to music to, to change over to, to podcasts. There was, I mean, there was some, some, some habit changing that took place there, of course, but it wasn't as much as you would, you know, telling people to listen to audio in Instagram or, or Facebook where the, where the use case is, is, is very different. And I, I think it speaks a lot to their, to, to this fact that they were able to basically become the number one podcast player in a matter of three years, right? Um, so I don't see why something similar doesn't play to their advantage in, in the live audio space, right? Yeah. And then two, two other things I have, I think Spotify has for their advantage is they own a ton of studios, right? So you could have Bill Simmons going on weekly, or I don't know what the cadence would be. He could go on Spotify green room, you got the Gimlet people. I forget all the other ones that they own. Yeah, it's podcast Gimlet. It's it it it's a lot. Of, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, they they're definitely they're definitely gonna gonna leverage that. I think another kind of interesting question is is because um, Ryan, you were you were talking about that the the fact that it's a separate app. Like, I'm not sure if it's gonna make sense to integrate that fully into into Spotify eventually. I think it's also going to be sort of a, a testing phase uh, to see if it makes sense to keep it separate or not. I think there's a point where you're putting way too much stuff in a in, a, in an app, and and maybe it's it's detrimental to the to the engagement. But again, I I sort of leave that to to, to management, right? And that's where you sort of have to trust them in, in their execution. That, yeah. that is, I mean, we we talked about this just before the show. Is there's so much going on now with I guess you could call it optionality that it's like, does that make the platform messy uh, or difficult to navigate from the consumer side? Yeah. What, I mean, what do you think there? In, in terms of, sorry, optionality in the app or, or how? Yeah. I mean, you can add in, so you could add in live audio, you could do podcast discovery, which we're going to briefly talk about here with the new pods integration, potentially. Uh, yeah, audio books too audiobooks, all that stuff. Do you think there's any point when it's like, all right, that, that's too much for the listener or for a user? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely, it definitely could, could get to that. And that's kind of the point I was, I was trying to make with, with, you know, maybe it makes sense to keep, to keep live as a, as a, as a separate app, because there's a point where you're, you know, kind of putting way too many features in, in one specific app that, you know, they sort of lose value for, for the customers and, and get, and get lost. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a, it's definitely a risk and, and something to, to, to consider. Yeah. And I think with, even with podcasts, I know that it's great to have the interoperability, but if they allow people to have the option of maybe doing Spotify music only, Spotify podcasts only, or you can have it together if you want, a lot of people would enjoy that because there's some people that just do music they don't want that podcast stuff crowned at their feed. I don't know if that goes against like their, um, the benefits of that, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I've, that's an interesting one as well. And I've definitely seen, you know, kind of segregated cases of people that, that have criticized that, that, that the combination, but 
so far from the data we've we've seen, it it, it makes sense to have them to have them together for now. And I and I do know kind of management thinks they they want users to wake up and just like press play and just use Spotify as their only audio app for the entire day and and just kind of pause along the way but come back, you know. So yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. There's definitely a lot more more to come, and we're we're still in the in the very early stages of this. Well, what do you think of the new Pods acquisition? I think this closed, or I don't know if it's even closed, uh, but they announced it last week. Um, I and I guess then bigger question: What do you think of the podcast related acquisitions that they've made in the past so far, just generally? Yeah. So. I think it's very it's very interesting and and it's definitely the the kinds of of acquisitions that that I want to see and that have historically worked for a company like like Spotify because essentially what they're what they're buying here is supposed to be one of the best podcast discovery tools right and and it's interesting because Packy actually wrote a, a pretty good piece about this. Uh, like I think it was like six months ago or, or something, and he suggested that Pods should partner with with Spotify on this. So it's pretty pretty funny that they ended up buying him. But he, I mean, he talks about the 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 power of of this of this Pods platform as being able to sort of using machine learning pick and choose the best thirty second or yeah or one minute clips of a, of any specific podcast. And apparently, it's really impressive what what they're able to. To do so, as, as if they can leverage this in in some way to to you know to help their podcast discovery and and you know another another kind of problem with podcasts that, that some people talk about is is that they 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 never go viral like you usually yeah. just see them on Twitter or have a friend send it to you but you've never really seen a a podcast go go viral I mean the only thing that comes to mind is Elon Musk smoking weed in, in in Joe Rogan but that was really like a visual kind of video right almost like a TikTok thing but um, I, I, so I, th- I think that makes a, a lot of sense. You know, the, it's interesting because Spotify used to make a lot of acquisitions on the on on, on the sort of algorithmic music discovery um, space, and one of the one of the companies that they, they bought was called the Echo Nest, which have eventually put put in sort of the the foundation for Discover Weekly, and and that's really when personalized music took off because people were just amazed that the quality of, of the songs that were being picked. And it wasn't just songs. It, it wasn't actually songs you, you knew. It was, it was songs that you probably had never heard before, which made it all that more impressive. Right. So I like to think of, of, of this acquisition as, as you know, a, a signal that they're trying to do something similar with, with podcasting. And if, if they are able to take up a big step forward on, on, on that side, as we uh, as we've as we've talked about, it's it, it's going to be huge, right? I think actually discovery is is one of their main, you know, in music is is one of their main sort of competitive advantages that I think is is pretty mis misunderstood. We can we can talk a little bit about that later, but just you know, continuing on with with the the other topic that that uh, that that you guys asked about specific to their to their podcast acquisitions, you know, that's probably the the most similar aspect that Spotify has has to Netflix right now, um, you know they, I, it's it's interesting because when you when, I think it's very instructive to actually study Netflix when when you know just learning about business in in general, but also when thinking about about Spotify. And I 
and I don't like to think of them as as equals, but it's it's still you can you can definitely see a lot of of, of similarities along the way, right? Because they started out, you know, renting out DVDs. They basically saw the writing on the wall and say and said, all videos are gonna and movies and, and TV shows are gonna go to the internet. Like we have to do something about this. So they transitioned to streaming, and then. After, after going through that transition, they realized they needed to own their own content. So it's, it's kind of similar to, to what Spotify has, has, has gone through, right? Because they started out in, in music, um, actually had a, you know, had a couple of setbacks along the way when, when, you know, when the consumer was transitioning from the desktop to, to the mobile phone um, and they were, they were able to, sur- to survive that. But then they kind of realized, you know, this market is, is much bigger and, and, and we can, you know, m- music is 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 definitely a, a tough business um, to to be in, at least at that at that specific time with with lower gross margins. So they decided to go after all of audio, which meant podcasting, and and now they're basically following that Netflix playbook by by buying all these all these exclusives and, and licensing all, all these all these different you know big names that we've that we've all heard about. Are all of them gonna gonna work out? Probably not. But I mean, again, it it speaks to their to their scale advantage because they can they can afford to pay more while at the same time pay less right and 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 Ben Thompson has talked a lot about this over the years in when when analyzing analyzing um, Netflix and I mean if you I, I ran some quick numbers at some, a, a couple last week with with like call her daddy right they're paying twenty million dollars a year basically means you need to monetize 1.7 million users at $1 per month, right? Now, she has anywhere from three to four monthly listeners, three to four million, right? She has almost almost 2 million followers in Instagram and, and, and Spotify has, you know, 355 monthly active users. So it's not, it's not a stretch to think that you, can, that you can surpass those numbers. And that doesn't even incorporate, you know, things like, we were talking about live. Like, what if she does a show, um, a special show in live, and sells tickets to it? Well, what if she sells subscriptions? Um, she's obvious. She's. I'm pretty sure she's going to do some sort of advertising in, in partnership with Spotify, who's going to have, um, you know, who's going to have the, the best probably um, advertising technology and, and the targeting, the targeting tools to 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 be able to monetize that better. So. You know, it's it's going to take some time to to see the impact in in terms of the benefits to the to the business, but um, I think it's 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 working out. I mean, if you look at the top five podcasts right now on on Spotify, three of them are are owned by Spotify or exclusive to them. Right, right, and internally here we discuss. You know, all right, all these acquisitions seem smart. Things seem to be moving in the right direction, but does the ad network is that really the crucial point they have to get that right in order to make this you know all these acquisitions make sense from from a financial standpoint i think advertising is a is a very big part of of the of the opportunity um one you know the big problem with with advertising in in podcasting is that it, it's it's so it's so hard to track and it's it's so hard to sort of dynamically in, insert targeted ads as i'm sure you, you you guys you guys know and and this goes back to just kind of the the really old technology that podcasts is is based off right that the rails are all rss and all that rss will will tell you and and apple podcasts is 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 built on this for example 
all they will tell you is, is how many downloads you get, right? You don't get any sort of additional um, uh, statistics in, in terms of, of listenership and, and, and kind of, yeah, like if they skipped over the ads or if they even listened to the, to the episode. So I, that's, um, that's a very big reason why, why Spotify decided to not go with the, with the RSS technology and, and just use their own, their own streaming technology. And, and, and now they can, they can track, you know, the, all these statistics much, much better. The next step, as, as you mentioned, is, is kind of going after the, the, the advertising by aggregating all the, all the content. And, and, and that's both on the, on the podcasting side, as well as the, the ad inventory from whatever brands would, would, would want to, would, would want to advertise there. And if it, the, the real opportunity is that it, if it's, if it's really solved and becomes, you know, a much more effective advertising means it's going to monetize at a much higher rate. Right. Um, I think advertising monetizes at, I think it, globally it's, it's probably around 30 to 40 cents per, per user per month. And yeah, well, we, and, uh, just to interject, we, we talk with me, we work with megaphone and they mentioned that on average right now. And to be clear to the listeners, megaphone is owned by Spotify. Yeah. Their average CPM is $26. So 26 cents. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, okay. So that's, and I think in the U S it's a little bit higher, but right. But you know, if you look at, I think Pandora is around one one sixty, and they've actually used uh, a dynamic sort of ad insertion for, for a little while now. So that's kind of an instructive uh, comparison. Um, but yeah, I mean, if they're able to, you know, it's not only about exclusives because obviously ex- exclusives are, are, are a big, are a big part of, 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 you know, engaging your, your existing audience and bringing in new users, et cetera. But if, if they're able to, you know, aggregate all these, all these content creators and, and, and have them spend more time on the, on the platform because it monetizes at a, at a higher rate. And, and, and I mean, you you guys are a, are a pretty good example. I'd love to get your take on it as well, but it's, it, it could be such a, such a large market. And I mean, radio is, is I think 35 billion globally, but you know, I, I, I'd say take that with a grain of salt when you're comparing the podcasting opportunity versus radio, because look at what happened if you, if you compared Google to, to the newspaper total addressable market, like you were off by, by magnitudes, right? And, and that's what happens when, you know, your, your audience is much more global and, and you can probably monetize much more effectively, right? So how do you guys think about that? I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, given you, you guys are on, on the other side. Yeah, Ryan, you want to go first? Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the efficacy thing, like, it's huge. And not only, I mean, Spotify kind of has the advantage because they have so much listener data. And we don't always know what ads are run on our shows because it's specific to the listener. But yeah, I, I mean, just from not only as a host, but as a listener, I always find podcast ads when they can put like their own personal touch on it more effective. I think like the one I think of is uh, the barstool cash app relationship. Yeah. yeah. It just worked. I, I'm not sure. And maybe it's hard to track what goes on behind the scenes. Cause maybe you don't click a link or something like that, but yeah, it feels far more effective than a radio ad. Yeah. And then to add on to that from a show, we want people to listen on Spotify because the ads work better than there, or at least that's yeah. a little bit anecdotal, but that's what we'd assume. And then from the analytics standpoint, if you use the Spotify for podcasters, I think that's what their analytics tool uh, that we use is called. You can see how many people stream it or start a stream. And you can see how many people listen to more than a minute. And then you can see how many people are falling off at certain points. So we've seen like for certain things, 
okay, we want to move something, you know, oh, we lost 20% of our listeners at this segment. Okay, this segment's not doing very well. It really helps us out in crafting the show. And they're a lot more helpful than Apple, which is just honestly hurtful where they change their update and we, you lose like 10% of your listeners overnight or something like that. Oh. You get no analytics. It's, in, it's a whole black box. Yeah. yeah. To, any, to any listeners listening right now, please stop skipping through those ads halfway through. <laughs> oh, and then one, one thing on the, the, dip. Out of Apple, the, a lot of the Apple listens, and we've talked about this with Francisco, who is, you know, is, is very knowledgeable about Spotify as well. I, we believe a lot of, and I think a lot of people know this, a lot of the Apple downloads are not listens because we get a ton on Apple. They're automatic. That automatic, right? At, we launch, we uh, drop the show at 1 a.m. Eastern time and we get a ton of downloads right then, but that doesn't make any sense. We, you have no idea who's actually listening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, kind Well, let's, let's pivot to universal a little bit because that's <laughs> something we want to get your takes on. Uh, so I guess just the deal, I believe, just closed. So what are your thoughts on the valuation of the deal? What do you think of uh, UMG? We, we don't have to go through the 10 different steps of the Pershing Square, you know, the most complicated deal of all time. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, absolutely not. And just to just to be clear, I've been, you know, I've, I've been looking at it, you know, very pretty much like, like on a high level. Like I haven't I haven't, you know, done a deep dive or, or anything, but, you know, broad strokes. I'd say it's valuation looks looks interesting to me, and and one thing to to kind of get out of the way is that I'm very bullish on the on the music industry as as a whole in terms of you know sort of the revenue pie growing a lot and and monetization getting getting better and kind of you know if you look at music and compare it to to other other media like like video games and 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 you know and TV and, and movies it's the the difference is 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 incredible. I think it's it's something to the order of four four to five times smaller, right? So my 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 sense is that's gonna that's gonna close in 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 you know over over time, not completely, but just close the gap, right? So in 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 uh, terms of of UMG specifically, they're you know the biggest growth driver is is their is, is streaming right and and really their their transition to 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 digital it's it's about two thirds of of their of their revenues right now with the remaining one third being basically um, you know physical sales and and things like like merchandising and it's it's pretty you know realistic to see a scenario where where the revenue grows at ten percent plus over the over the next five years and and the margins go from I think they were just below 18% um, last year and, and probably going to surpass, you know, 22, 23 in the next, in the next five years or so. So if you, you kind of play around with, with those numbers and that's usually how I try to think about valuation. Um, I, I try to, I prefer to use easy math and just, you know, make the assumptions easy. Um, I mean, I could see, I guess I could see this returning, you know, like a 14, 15% IRR over the next five years, which is basically a double from here. Um, and you know, yeah, they paid, I think it's, it's 23 times EBIT, um, next year's EBIT or something like that. But again, just thinking where the company could be in the next, in the next five years, which is usually how I try to think about, about how to value a company. Cause again, it just goes back to, to my long-term thinking and it's, um, it, it looks like a, it looks like a pretty decent bet. I mean, they have a lot of things going for them. Yeah. How do you think about their relationship with the streaming providers? So like, uh, I mean, 
Spotify and UMG, do you think there's any scenario where Spotify has so much leverage that it starts to hurt Universal? Yeah, I think at least in, in the next, you know, in the medium term, call it, I, I don't think that's, that, that's going to that's, that's gonna hurt them too much or, or, or even happen, right? Like Spotify making a, um, a, a very big move in terms of, you know, magnitude of, you know, like starting to sign all these superstars or anything. The label business is, is, a, very, is a very complex business. And there's a reason why the, the top, I mean, the top 10 artists are, are signed with a label, right? It's, it's not only because they provide the money. It's a, it's a very complex, you know, kind of marketing and, and logistics and, and sort of networking um, kind of business, right? But going back to, to, that, to that question, I think, you know, this is, this is a supplier-customer relationship, right? And it's, I like to think of it as, as, as very symbiotic, right? It, it, it's going to be profitable for both. Obviously, these negotiations that, that take place every, every two to three years are, you know, they're, they're pretty complex, but, you know, Universal and, and all the labels are as profitable as they've ever been. And, and in large part, it's, it's thanks to Spotify. And, and Spotify hasn't really captured the value or achieved the mar margins that arguably it deserves, given the value that it has, you know, added to the, to the industry and the whole ecosystem. So um, I think they'll, they're going to get creative in, in finding ways to, you know, to make it profitable for, for, for both without, without, you know, necessarily hurting each other. And there's many things they can, they can do for, um, you know, to, to accomplish this. We've already seen the announcement of, of the two-sided marketplace, which basically means that, you know, Universal is going to be spending some marketing dollars on Spotify's platform. So that basically brings, you know, 85% margin revenue to, to Spotify's, uh, you know, P&L, um, while at the same time, you know, it's just moving around the, the marketing budget in, in Universal. It's probably going to take some time because, again, these labels are very big and, and old corporations and they're, they're, they're not known to kind of, you know, use a new technology in, 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 in sort of in, in a broad way, right? They, they sort of have to get used to it first, but, but um, yeah, the other, the other part that, um, that I think they can, they can, they, they can play around with this is the price increases, right? They, they've both talked about it. Spotify has started announcing price increases in, in actually a couple of markets. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting way to kind of effectively increase Spotify's margins without optically seeing, seeming like they're paying less to the, to the labels. Because if you think about, you know, they pay around, call it two thirds of, of their revenues out to, to rights holders, right? So it's not all to the labels, but it's to, it's to the rights holders. And if, you, if, you, if they agree that for every incremental dollar, Spotify is, is gonna get, you know, 50%, 50 it's instead, of, instead of the 30, you know, instead of that 35 or, or, or whatever, the labels are going to get more and Spotify is going to get more, right? So it's, it's, it, it comes back to that comment I was saying about closing that gap. And I know the labels are very um, enthusi enthusiastic about that as, as well. And they talk about it in all their filings about the pricing power and, and, and all that. And, and that, that's going to be a very interesting, interesting uh, route, you know? Um, I think the bare thesis about the labels, you know, kind of pulling catalog is, is, has been completely, you know, it's... Yeah, they can't. It, it's yeah, it's practically impossible by now. Like, and I've I've talked about this on Twitter multiple multiple times. But basically, it it would be a 
you know, you're losing 20% of your highest margin revenue and you have to deal with shareholders, deal with management that's not going <laughs> to reach their, their incentive targets. You have to deal with all the artists and songwriters that stop getting paid. Like it's, it just doesn't make any sense. Like for what reason you can't, you're, they're not going to go exclusive. Like everyone knows exclusive music doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of the streaming services, it's pretty easy to see the steady growth there. How, are, how does it work with, you know, YouTube, TikTok, um, even Roblox is, I guess, a new partner. How does that work? How do the licensing deals get done on that? Yeah. So, you know, at least in, 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 in the example of TikTok, where, where um, you know, it's a, a large part of, of, the, of the platform is, is kind of based off, off of music. Yeah. It's it's tough because I think the what the labels try to try to get to is is capture you know capture some of the value that's being you know kind of generated by this platform thanks to 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 music and and with TikTok I'm guessing those negotiations were were pretty were pretty complex but you know essentially what they end up doing is is they take uh, a cut of the of the revenues in the in the case of TikTok, it's going to be the advertising revenues that that TikTok makes. But of course, TikTok is going to argue, you know, music is only a part of it. Like it's our algorithm, it's our, you know, it's the videos that people are are posting, etc. So they they probably end up paying, um, obviously, much lower than uh, payout than than Spotify in a in a percentage basis as well as in an absolute basis. Um, I think it's Peloton that pay that pays out. I could definitely be wrong on this, but it, it's it's a it's a number like 20 percent plus of the okay. of their of the revenues. If I don't if I recall correctly, it's a, it's it's not insignificant, right? But um, yeah, I mean that's that's the labels. It's the labels' job, right? It's it's they have to monetize as as as, as much as they can and sort of try to make the case that that music is is being used in a in a in a way that's that you know that that they should be sharing part of that revenue with with, with them and. I mean, they have to pay them something always because it's it's illegal to to use music without without a license in a in a place like like TikTok and 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 YouTube and and, and Roblox, etc. But but yeah, there's there's not a lot of transparency in these in these deals, and and you you're never gonna you're never gonna get like the exact um, details of it because yeah. they're super confidential. But that but we kind of know how they work, right? Right, and with I guess Spotify in general flipping to their viewpoint. Do is there any way for them to negotiate the revenue share lower if you know podcasts become a better part? I know they have to go back to like the drawing board and renegotiate stuff, but do you think that's going to give them some leverage to maybe get it down to sixty percent payout or something like that instead of two? Yeah, months? you know, that's I wouldn't expect that, and I'm I'm not really counting on that. Like, um, okay. it's not it's not impossible, especially if if podcasting becomes a huge part of the, of the business and, and, and they struggle to monetize it correctly. I think they could probably go back and, and try something like that, but it's, it's definitely not like my, my base case. And what's interesting is on the, so Spotify is, is, is two businesses, right? Basically it's, it's the ad supported and the, and the subscription business on the subscription business. Every, everything goes to the, to the labels, no matter like, if, no matter how, no matter how many podcasts you're listening to, the way the agreements work is is that all that revenue share is 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 for the labels. What they were able to do so far is separate the uh, the advertising. 
So any any advertising, obviously, that takes place in a in a podcast is going to be separated to podcasting and 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 the creators and and have a different margin profile. Um, what I think is is going to be what what I think they're gonna they're gonna be able to to do is 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 just to incrementally monetize the, the podcasting side. And that goes back to what we were talking about, about uh, advertising. And they've also talked about, about a premium subscription service for, for special, you know, for, 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 for podcasts. Right. And, and I mean, you guys, I don't know if you've, if you've heard anything, anything about this, but you eventually will be able to sort of charge $5 per month and have bonus episodes and, maybe even like a Q and a and green room and, and stuff like that with, with your premium subscribers. And, and most of that is, that's how I like to think about their, their, their potential opportunity is just incremental revenue. That's going to sit on top of, of the, of the existing revenue base that they have. Right. No. Yeah. We've heard of that. I, it's still slow to be enrolled at, but it's definitely a great way to experiment. But, but in general, I'll, I'll say the, the podcasting strategy and people forget about this sometimes, but it it's it will help them a lot in the in the negotiations going forward. And and again, there this these contracts are not only about the payouts. There's a lot more to them in terms of what Spotify can do and and um, you know business like business initiatives. Like we know that the, that the labels at some point had to approve like acquisitions that Spotify was doing, etc. So if you if you if you go back to the to the you know to the negotiating table and 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 fifty percent of your users are listening to podcasts you know and just call call it two thirds music one third podcast it's going to be a different conversation than if you were still hundred percent music right I mean the labels right. is is going to essentially have um, their their listening share diluted right so I think it's going to be interesting. Last question before we hit an ad break and then move on to U haul. Uh, yep. What do you think of a TikTok competitor as a threat to Spotify? Yeah, you know, competitions is is interesting and 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 definitely very like important to 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 keep a to keep an eye on. I think TikTok as it is 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 in no way a competitor. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a music discovery tool if if anything, and it's it's almost accidental. Like people don't go to TikTok just to listen to to music. I mean, at the end of the day, they're I forget if they're 15 or 30 second clips, but, but yes, it helps. It, it can help an artist kind of blow up, but eventually they just go to Spotify to actually listen to the, to the songs. What I think is more interesting is, is their ambition to also build their own music streaming platform. Cause they have, they have announced that. Um, I think it's called, yeah, it's called Riso. And it, I think it's launched in only a handful of, of, of markets and we haven't really heard um, much updates on, on, on that side, but the fact that, you know, TikTok is, is obviously has very powerful technology and, 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 you know, large, it's a large financial backer and large valuation. So they can raise, they can raise tons of capital at, at pretty, at pretty decent terms. So if they really wanted to go after, um, I think it's definitely something to, to, to keep an eye on. Um, I think the other kind of competitor that I, that I think about a little bit is, is, is YouTube even more than, than Apple and Amazon, where I, I'd argue their music is merely a distraction for them. Um, and, and I mean, there's, there's a lot of evidence to that, but with YouTube, I mean, there's over 2 billion people that use, that use YouTube, right? And a lot of them listen to music. Uh, the problem is I haven't seen them really take audio seriously, right? If they, if they really shifted their strategy 
towards like audio and started giving out more, you know, giving out the product for, for, for free and, and, you know, and really innovating on, on that front. I, I think they could be a pretty, you know, a pretty compelling competitor to Spotify. I just, I just haven't seen any, any evidence of, of them sort of shifting their, their strategy and, it's probably going to stay that way because video is much, much higher margin and it would probably disrupt their own business, et cetera. So, yeah. All right. Well, we're going to hit a quick break and then we'll talk you all on the second half. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, Get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back in. Uh, Next up, this is a company that we haven't looked at much, but you've covered them, and it's U-Haul. Probably uh, something uh, anybody that's moved is familiar with. So just generally, what's kind of the thesis there for you? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when when I when I invest, one of the first things I I like to do is is just really understand the two or three drivers that are that are going to drive you know the majority of the company's value going forward. And in the case of of U-Haul, you have to believe basically three things. Um, the first is is that they're gonna they're gonna keep. You're gonna, you're gonna, they're gonna keep being the indisputable leader in in what is called the do-it-yourself moving space, which obviously is just going out and, and renting out a truck and, and moving yourself, right? And they've historically, you know, for they've been around for 75 years and they've historically um, kept taking market share um, every single year, right? Um, more recently, the past call it call it 10 years, they've been growing at, at high high single digits. Uh, the second the second uh, kind of premise that you that you have to focus on is their expansion into self storage. Okay, so um, U-Haul basically twenty years ago realized that self storage was super complementary to their business because obviously people that are moving uh, a lot of them tend to have you know storage needs. So it just became kind of low hanging fruit to combine those two and and, and build storage units. Um, close to close to the the, the the U-Haul locations, and they've been you know they've been expanding that uh, for the for the better part of of the last twenty years, and are actually now the 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 second or third biggest self storage player in the in the U.S., which is is pretty impressive, and a lot of people don't don't realize that. And the third, the, you know, the third aspect is 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 management because this is a, a company that is. You know, for all intents and purposes, a family-owned company that that's controlled, right? The 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 founders own over forty percent of the company, so you really have to be, you know, on their on their side and and trust all the decisions that they're that they're making because the, the you know how they treat shareholders and their capital allocation priorities, et cetera, are are super important for the for the business going forward. So I think those are the the three uh, kind of things that I 
that I like to think about in terms of, of, of U-Haul as a, you know, as an investment going forward. Right. Right. And then getting deeper, you know, when you look at U-Haul, you're like, well, this business probably has, you know, a mode or competitive advantage because when you think it's uh, moving, you're like, well, I'm just going to get a U-Haul. But what can you go maybe deeper in why they have a moat and what they've invested in that gives them some sort of competitive advantage? Yeah, absolutely. So the most, you know, the most important part is realizing that in this business, scale is is a huge advantage, right? And scale also means you eventually reach a point where you have physical network effects that kick in and are super powerful because. I mean, you guys, you guys are in Seattle, right? If you, if you want to move to, I don't know, some random town in, in, in Ohio, you want to have, you want to be able to, to find the cheapest option, but also kind of, if you're going to do it yourself, you're going to be able to rent out from a place that's close to your house, the one that you're living in, but also a place that's close to the house that you're moving to, right? So if you look at, if you look at locations uh, of U-Haul versus, versus competitors, um, they have 10 times more, more locations than, than the next closest competitor, which is budget. And if you look at the amount of trucks that they have, um, they have 25 times more than, than budget, right? So it's a, it's a huge difference in terms of, of, of size. And it's pretty, you know, pretty quickly you realize that, you know, the majority of the time they're going to have the most convenient um, option for anyone to, to move. Um, whether that be, you know, in town or, or out of town, obviously in town is, is more competitive because you're only moving, you know, maybe, maybe a 10 minute drive or, or whatever, but it's, it's proven out to be that, that it's super important to, to have that scale. And if you look at, you know, budget and, and even Penske and, and, and Ryder, which are the other, the other two kind of big truck, truck leasing companies, um, they both, they've both retrenched. Um, I mean, budget has gone through multiple restructurings the past, the past 10 years and has reduced their fleet and, um, Penske and, and, and Ryder basically turned to, to B2B, right. They only focus on the commercial side right now. So, you know, everything points to, to the, to the fact that it's, that this is a, a real competitive, um, advantage. Now it's not, I'll, I'll be clear on, on this part. It's U-Haul's not a great business. Okay, it's 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 a good business, right? Um, and what I mean by that is that if you if you look at at the return returns on 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 invested capital, um, it's probably around eleven to twelve percent, right? So nothing nothing sensational, right? A, a great business would probably be you know closer to twenty or even or even more than that. But what makes me very comfortable is is the fact that you know the competition, as I said, is is very limited, and and this sort of gives you you know much better kind of long term visibility for the business going going forward, and and you can you know you can you can make some a good amount of money on on businesses like this, especially with a company of like U-Haul that's that's investing all of their capital back into the into the into the business and has some leverage. So it's I think that's another kind of you know, some people focus too much on, 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 on like ROIC and like only screen for, for companies that are above a certain level and, and stuff. But I, I think if anything, U-Haul's ROIC is going to go up. And, and one, of the, one of the best ways to make money in the, in the stock market is to kind of invest in a company right before it's, it's ROIC in, in, in flex upwards, right? You can, you, can, you can make a lot of money that way. Right. Then, or go ahead, Ryan. Uh, I don't know if you have the numbers in front of you, but what kind of valuation does it trade at? Do you know? 
Yeah, it's around 10 billion right now. Um, so the way that I, it's it's hard to think about U-Haul in, in terms of, you have to make a lot of adjustments, right? To the, to the income statement and, and management doesn't provide any sort of guidance or, or even adjusted earnings, which most companies do. Um, They'll just tell you the gap earnings and you have to kind of go, go your way. I I was reading the conference call. The analysts are mad every time. I don't know if you read the conference calls, but the analysts get mad. They're like, are you going to do something? And they're like, nah, no, they do. Yeah, they do. And, And that's why I stressed that, that management is so important because this is not a company to hold for two or three years. Like you really have to be up with them on the long term because that's the way that they operate and, and, and think. But going back to to the um, to, to the valuation, um, so you know on a pair share on a pair share basis, I think the company probably makes will make this this year around around forty dollars per share. So that's around thirteen times at, at, the, at the current valuation. There's a couple of, of things you, you have to consider uh, going, going forward, right? The first is that self-storage, the way that they've expanded to self-storage, especially in recent years, is, is not by buying properties like existing properties because Anishman has been pretty vocal about the fact that it's super expensive and um, it's a pretty hot market right now. So what they do is, is they, they, you know, they build from the ground up, right? They, they buy... Or or convert an existing an, an, an existing maybe retailer or something and turn it into a into a self storage and that takes that takes a lot of time and you also have um, a big headwind from the fact that you're gonna you're gonna have full operating expenses from day one and you're gonna have zero revenues because you have to fill the units right, right. so their occupancy is is much lower than than any other competitor and there's sort of a natural tailwind that as as units um, get to full occupancy, which is usually above 90%, you're going to have a lot of incremental margins. So, so the self-storage opportunity is, is definitely um, not being priced incorrectly at the, at the moment. And the other part is, is the moving business that saw a huge benefits from, from COVID, um, obviously, as people decided to, to, to move a lot. And, and we saw this the last nine months um, where, you know, because the, the same, I guess the, the quarter of, of, the current quarter we're in last year uh, was when everything was shut down. So they were, they also suffered, but as things started opening back up, they, you know, revenues were up 25% or something insane like that. And my belief is, is that there's an interesting option in the, in, in, when you invest in the stock right now, that the, the mover rate is going to kick up, which has consistently been coming down. It's around, I think it's nine or 10% um, 2019. I haven't seen 2020 numbers, but if post-COVID we get into uh, a situation where people start moving more, they're going to benefit greatly, and and the margins are just going to kick into high gear, and 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 the, and the stock is going to prove to be to be much cheaper than it, it actually looks. Right, that makes sense. One pushback I'd have, or maybe a concern that I've just been thinking about, is you know we've seen at least in the United States, which is where they operate. There's a lot of government push to change transportation to all electric. Do you think that would mit, like give them an increase in capital intensity over the next decade that could really hurt their cash generation? Have you thought about that at all, or, or could that be a benefit? Because they have. I actually think it's it's a benefit, and and it's a very good question, and the one that I've that I've heard a lot, as well as the sort of the autonomous. Uh, question, right. which I think it's it's much further down the road, but the the, the EV question is, is certainly 
uh, very important. And if, if it does happen, it's not going to be like a one-year mandate, right? Like these things tend to have, you know, at least five years in terms of actually coming to, to being, you know, into law and, and being mandated for, for everyone is, is my sense. Um, U-Haul turns, I think it's as, as, as it could be anywhere from 15, 15% plus of their fleet every year. Uh, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty high number. It's not as high as, as car rental companies, which are a terrible business for that reason. They have to turn over half of their fleet, but, but, you know, 15% means you, you, you can basically switch your fleet completely in seven years. Right. Um, so if that does happen, I think they would be able to do it. They have great relationships with, with Ford and, and GM who are their, their biggest suppliers on the, on the truck side. And the, the other benefit that I think would come from being all electric is that, uh, repair, repair costs, which are repair and maintenance, which are a huge, huge part of their costs, um, would probably go down because the way I understand it, um, you know, electric vehicles don't need as much as much repairs as, as um, you know, it's it's less complexity on the on the, on the, as a versus a nice motor, right? So um, there might be a there might be an incremental benefit on on that side as well. Does U-Haul have any other businesses other than the self storage and transportation? Yeah, so they actually they actually do, and and you know the the company is called Americal, and it's it's technically a, a holding company and. It's it's funny because you were talking about the the earnings call and, and another criticism they get every every single one like you go go to a transcripts and, and take a look and, and there's always someone telling them why don't you change your name to U-Haul and they're always like no no we don't we don't care about that <laughs> it just gets cut off but uh, but yeah so they they actually have um, two insurance companies which is a little bit odd um, one of them makes sense because it's a it's a property casualty insurance that basically ensures the, the, the moving and self-storage operation. When you, when you rent a U-Haul and you get insurance, like that's, that's who's underwriting that, right? So that, that, makes, that makes some sense. The other one is, is a life insurance company that they've owned for a, for a long time. And I, I, I mean, it's profitable, but there's no, there's no synergies between one and the other. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Like the management seems to be okay with it. Um, within moving, there's a couple of interesting things that they, that they also have that maybe is not as, as obvious, but their, you know, their, their retail operation is, is actually pretty, um, pretty big, right? Like if you, the, you know, product and service sales, if you, if you go to, if you go to U-Haul and, and buy, you know, and buy a box or, or buy, you know, anything related to, to moving really that they're going to sell you in the store. That's, that's, that's a pretty, you know, significant part of the, of the business. I think it's, it's around 300, $300 million dollars. Um, they also have uh, a more recent initiative called uh, U-Box, uh, which basically, you know, they bring a box to your to, to to your home as you're moving, and you put all your stuff there, and they'll take it to wherever you you want them to 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 move, right? Um, so that's another one that I think has been growing pretty um, pretty nicely, which I think makes sense to kind of experiment with with different uh, with different business models and in, in moving as well. All right. I think that's going to wrap it up for U-Haul. We don't want to go too long. So let's hit the wrap up questions. First one, what is one financial saying you disagree with? Sure. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's definitely many and it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, in, in investing, 
I, I always go back to the fact that there's no absolutes in investing, right? So every time you hear sort of a saying in, in finance, you it's it's always healthy to, to question it. Um, one that I used to do a lot and kind of learned the hard way that it's it's not as simple as 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 it sounds is is averaging down, right? Like the traditional value investing school will, will teach you to sort of double down on a stock when the, when the price drops, I don't know, 15, 30%. And I've learned that it's, that you have to, you know, first you have to really think about the reason why it dropped. Right. Cause in, in, in some cases, you know, a, a very substantial piece of negative news came out and, and, you know, say they, the company lost a, 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 a 30% a 30% customer and, and, and fall and fell 30%, but maybe it's more expensive because that was their most profitable customer or something like that. So you always have to, you know, really consider why the, the company, the company's stock is, is down and, 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 and realize what that means for, for your investment thesis, if it's, if, if it's changed or not. So you have to be kind of really true to yourself in, in that sense. Um, and I've actually learned to average up more often than averaging down. Um, I mean, Spotify is an example. I mean, as they, I started buying in the, in the low one hundreds um, and, you know, I kept buying all the way to, to probably around these levels. Cause when I started buying, it was, it was mostly focused on music, but then they basically doubled their, their addressable market and, and executed on podcasting. And, and I mean, the stock price went up, but the opportunity also did. So it's, it's one of those examples where yeah. I think it made sense. I think we're in the same boat there with, with Spotify and it seems counterintuitive and it's easy to like anchor to the stock price itself, but I or, think- Or just the sales multiple. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. The, I mean, I mean sales have grown yeah, double digits, so. <laughs> yeah, the multiple might even, maybe I'm wrong, but it might be cheaper now than it was at 160 or whatever it was three years ago. Yeah, I can take a look quick, but- I don't know if you want to ask the last question. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I'll get to the last one. Uh, what's one piece of advice you have for anyone that's starting out in the investing world? Yeah, so I would say really try to f- find something that you know that that fascinates you. That's that's you know your passion or your or your or your hobby, and and really try to learn as much in terms of you know whatever industry or or company is is, is related to that, and it's. You know, I like to I like to give out the example of, of skiing, right? I love I love skiing, and I've been I've been looking at at, at Vail Resorts for for a while now, and it's a company that I it, it was so easy for me to study it because I'm so familiar with it, and it's a and it's something I love doing. So I think that applies to to so many you know to so many different aspects in in, in investing, and it just it just makes it a lot more fun, right? And you're going to learn a lot more if if you if you have you know, if, if you have the interest to, to, to do it and, and really the fascination for it. So um, I, I, I think that that's going to, um, that's going to play to, to anyone's advantage when they're, when they're starting out on investing. All right. That mm-hmm. makes sense. I looked at the sales multiple quick. It's slightly higher than it was in 2019, but it's below right. the IPO. So yeah. yeah, but they've, they've grown with it. Right. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. Uh, where can anyone find you? What's the sub stack Twitter? Handle? Yeah. So uh, my Twitter is uh, sleepwellcap and the substack is sleepwell.substack.com. So yeah, DMs are open. If, if you have any, if you want to chat or have any, any feedback for any of my tweets or substack pieces, always, always happy to get that. Perfect. All right. Thank you for your time. Enjoyed it. Yeah. It was very fun guys. Uh, thanks for having me and hopefully we'll do it sometime soon. 
All right. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Sleepwell Capital for joining us. Uh, I'm going to kick things off with this week's story. So I titled it Titan to Zero. And you, you got a long list here. Uh, I'm excited about hearing the story. It's really complicated, which that should start as a red flag. If these things are super complicated to understand, it's probably not worth investing in them, to be honest. Uh, and obviously this one wasn't. But Iron Titanium Token, a.k.a. Titan – crashed this week and i mean crashed uh so titan belongs to iron finance which is one of those uh it's partially collateralized and it's a stable coin protocol so there's all these derivatives off crypto now and this is basically one of them uh and this uh, the details of how this thing worked were super complicated but the aim is basically to reduce the volatility of certain cryptos by linking it to the u.s dollar and then another quote-unquote stable coin uh, but B in crypto, which is sort of, a, I think it's like a crypto website, explains Titan like this. Iron Finance uses a two-token mechanism, an iron stable coin intended to be pegged to $1, and a Titan collateral coin. This is designed to absorb market volatility caused by shifts in the supply and demand for iron. Iron is not like... It's not real. It's just another it's not like coin. Real iron. It's like another coin, yeah. So okay. it's just like ticker iron, essentially. All right. So Iron, which allows users to mint new stable coins, I know this is getting complicated, uses Titan as part of its collateral backing. Okay, so it's kind of like but – This is where if you saw Michael Burry's tweets this week about leverage in the system, okay, there's a lot of reliance on other cryptos within existing cryptos and we're starting to see the fallout of that. So I'm deferring to Coindesk for a further explanation, but it says – Due to how the tokenomics of this particular DeFi project functions, when new iron stablecoins are minted, the demand for Titan increases, driving up its price. Conversely, when the price of Titan falls dramatically, as was the case on Wednesday evening, the peg becomes unstable. So it's all the whole point of Titan is that it's supposed to be the stable peg. Doesn't sound for like iron. it's doesn't sound like it was pegged, really. Yeah, and however, Wednesday night, Titan's price fell from $65 to $60, so only it dropped $5. It was an 8% decline. This caused bigger investors to have to start selling or offloading their Titan tokens uh, because it's supposed to be this reliable uh, peg, um, which basically created this sort of run on the bank type of thing uh, or type of event. And so that night, Titan fell to literally $0. It's like trading at one one millionth of a penny yeah we're at the a one thousandth uh there's like three zeros after the decimal point yeah and this started to decrease the value of iron obviously and let them go from a value of north of two billion dollars to around 365 million dollars in less than a day obviously there's also that peg to the u.s dollar or usdt um so there is like some, I guess, value left in it. And there was like an arbitrage opportunity, but that got really complicated. Well, isn't USDT Tether, isn't that a separate thing or are these related? Yeah, but there was like a way you were allowed to like redeem. I don't I, I guess. have no idea how. I don't know who's on the hook for that money. It, anyway, that's part of the complication. <laughs> it's um, all too complicated. And so Mark Cuban was a big supporter of Titan. Uh, and most people say that he even popular, popularized it, which is in a perfect example of not knowing what you're doing. Um, and then when he was asked on Twitter about it, he said, I got hit like everyone else. Crazy part is I got out. The thought they were increasing their total value locked enough because you have to have like a certain value in order to be stable, uh, which is kind of ironic. And, and he says, then bam. In yeah, a then letter, bam, dude. What? <sighs> Come on. And he's treating it like 
Uh, and he said it was a small portion of his crypto portfolio, but enough to upset him, which probably a lot more upsetting to the people that follow him. Uh, in a letter to Bloomberg, he said there should be regulation to define what a stablecoin is and what collateralization is acceptable. So I think it's like this – it's become a theme now where you get hit with it and then you blame the system yeah. <laughs> among influencers that there should be something – uh, someone should mm, maybe a centralized more. entity. You know, we could have central. You know, there could be someone that makes these decisions and keeps everything stable, like governments. Yeah, right now, and he's that, that's bad. He's been getting uh, basically torn apart on social media. I think this is a perfect lesson of the. It takes twenty years to build a reputation, five minutes to ruin it. It uh, seems like he had a tr- like. I don't know. It does, it really, it doesn't matter what his reputation is, but it seems like his reputation was irrationally too high. Like he's been doing kind of shady. I mean, he kind of yeah. sold out during the dot-com bubble and just sold it to, I forget who, Yahoo for yeah. like basically nothing for like $4 billion. I mean, he's kind of, kind of doing shady stuff like this for a long time. Yeah, it was a very tone-deaf week for him on Twitter. Uh, and then shortly after, I think it's unrelated, but the Mavericks, <laughs> like coaches... Uh, resigned. Yes, yes, they were all. They're probably all long Titan coin, <laughs> or maybe that's maybe that's where he was paying him under the bus. I don't know. There was rumors that the golden. These were fake rumors, but people are speculating that you know, the only reason people used to get uh, the big players to the Golden State Warriors is they, you know, maybe Chamath slid them a little Bitcoin. Uh, but that, there's no sources that, that they. Uh, people on Twitter also started making memes about it. There was a picture of him on the cover of Remember the Titans. I enjoyed mm, that one. That's good. Um, I, he'll never live this down. It's funny. Like he could do, you know, he could have a lot of good investments, but one fraudulent, I mean, pumping a scam. Yeah. Well, he's, uh, pumped multiple, he's pumped multiple scams. I mean, I guess, uh, because, you know, Dogecoin is not, I guess you can't call it a scam. It's just kind of weird. Dogecoin's weird, but he, for some strange reason, has just been so hyped up on Dogecoin which just makes no sense. Like people have just been tracking followers. Around. Yeah, I mean, it just—he's like, we're going to take tickets with uh, Dogecoin and stuff. I'm like, I don't know, guys. Like, just—I'd be nervous, honestly, <laughs> if so I was in the nervous. Mavericks organization. I'd be nervous if I was Cuban, dude. If we had a real SEC, I mean, I feel like he should go to prison. But no, uh, I don't—I don't know the exact rules. What's your story? Um, okay. Well, we got Wise is a direct listing in London, and this is TransferWise, if you don't know. So it used to be called TransferWise, and they switched their name to Wise, um, whatever. So they're a cross-border payment system that was built to replace the clunky legacy systems. So we all know, like, when you send things across the border, there are just obscene fees that you have to pay each time. It can be up to 7% of the dollar amount if you're using Western Union, and that really screws over people that are sending money to either a business or to families in other countries. So a couple of quick stats on TransferWise. Um, 75 billion in GPV last year, that's gross payment volume. So that's the amount of dollars flowing through their network. $586 million in full year revenue. And for some stats on a quick, you know, TAM here, I know we're not I know we kind of are anti-TAM sanity, but there's $25 trillion moved across borders each year, which people spend $264 billion to make happen, which is insane. Yeah. Uh, Wise wants to disrupt that, obviously, with cheaper fees and faster transactions, and they built a modern network that 
uh, the old networks were built decades and decades ago, so it's just the infrastructure isn't built. It's just impossible to replace until you make a whole new system like TransferWise did. They have over 10 million customers, and I'm not sure if that's monthly active users or just people that have used the platform. Gross profit is actually quite strong, $110 million in 2019, up to $362 million in fiscal year 2021, which I assumed ended sometime in early 2021. And then they had $145 million in free cash flow last year, so really strong cash conversion. Wise looks to me like a great business. Any potential concerns here? What's stopping them from continuing this growth? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it looks like a good business. I don't know if there's anything stopping them. Uh, there is. It's strange how business to business and even just generally cross-border payments has been so full of friction for so long. Like mm-hmm. every anyone, it feels like anyone could have done this. Well, there's just a lot of inertia. Like everyone is do er, everyone is doing something a certain way, and is convincing people to move to something else. Just seems extremely hard. You got to convince everyone to switch to something else. Which I guess you know maybe the Western Union or something. They they have strong network effects. You know. I mean, even like look at, look at PayPal. It, weren't their business transaction fees just overly expensive? Like mm, I don't know. They were just too high that people are looking for an alternative. Are you aiming for cross border? Yeah, and business in general, because this yeah. this can apply to also like uh, uh, inter. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you don't yeah. have to go cross border. Right now, Wise, I believe, is all cross border. But yes, they could try to disrupt business to business stuff, as we all know. Wire transfers or wire fees are really, really high. Um, which is such sense. a hassle. Yeah, it's it's an extreme hassle. I mean, what my thought was is that Wise is basically everything crypto wants to be. We've talked, we just had the story about all these, um, I don't want to call them by their, it's not a slang term, but uh, uh, the altcoins, the non, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum that are all basically BS, right? Yeah. Uh, This is like something that, you know, they're actually solving a problem in reality here and they're doing good while, you know. Yeah. Using crypto as a means for, I mean, not if you take Coindesk's. Or Coinbase's transaction fees, but well, you don't understand the token tokenomics. <laughs> it, I mean, using it as a way to uh, change your currency seems like the most easy application mm-hmm. or the most logical application in my mind. Um, but For sure, but Wise is doing that. I mean, they're doing it with. Yeah, I guess you don't crypto. need it. Yeah, and they're well, doing. How it do they make fees. revenue? Just a fee? Yeah, they the the way they set it up, and they can be profitable as we as I. Where we see what the numbers I laid out with, I think the average fee is 0.7% for cross border, which is still a well fee, done. but you got to make money somehow. You know, I would I would rather have a little bit lower than the competitors and a transparent fee, like them just tell you exactly how much it's going to be guaranteed. Without you know crypto, you have no idea if your money is going to go to zero. Yeah, and there's, I mean, some of these other services have gone ahead and tried to complicate the fee structure so much. Mm-hmm. Like a fixed ten cent plus two percent, unless it's over uh, five dollars, then you and it's right, like right. just give me a flat fee and I'll pay it. That was one of their pitches too. Make I, it easy. I, yeah, they have a whole prospectus if you want to check it out on their investor relations page. I just took a glance at the first ten pages. Uh, we'll have to take a look for all the details, but that was one of their pitches as well. Extremely transparent on the fees. Really simple. Uh, last question though: What multiple of gross profit? Oh. Or free cash flow? Do you think this is getting? I'm thinking this is going to be really, really thirty high. times sales. So like North, eighty maybe. times eighty times free cash flow, something higher. 
No, probably that's even above higher. that. I mean, unfortunately, gross profit multiple of like seventy. <laughs> no, no, that would, it would be like fifty. I'll bet it gets something close to Adyen. Yeah, because that there makes is sort sense. of an international. True. True. Maybe discount a little bit. True. If this was an, because uh, they're headquartered where in London? Yeah, and I wouldn't say Adyen's at a discount. It's at like fifty temp sales. My, it, well, compared to Stripe. <laughs> okay. Well, those. Yeah, I mean, that. If we peg everything to Stripe, yes, then I think uh, 30 times sales makes sense. I, I would think, you know, you got to do a lot of investigations here. I would think this is something you'd want to, I wouldn't mind paying up a, you know, high multiple for, but we'll see how high. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd, I'd love to own it at the right price uh, from the numbers that I see there, but. Yeah. I'm going to get into my next story. It's the Lordstown Motors Mirage continued. So last week, the CEO of Lordstown Motors, we've talked about him before. His name is Steve Burns, resigned after an investigation into the company's pre-orders. The CFO also resigned, not after, uh, not until he had sold a big chunk of stock, but he also resigned. Um, And this was following the Hindenburg report. So uh, right after the report was was released, Lordstown hired a special committee, the board of directors did, to review the merits of the claims and look into the pre-orders. A few weeks back, the company admitted that it needed more money to execute on its production plans. It's been a rough few weeks. And the company said on several occasions, this is what they found after the investigation, that the majority of its 100,000 non-binding pre-orders were made from commercial fleets. That's what they said originally. Mm -hmm. But they found out that this was obviously not the case. The investigation also found that one company made a large pre-order purchase but does not appear to have the resources to complete a large purchase. I believe that's probably the two guys living in an apartment that – ordered yeah. a billion I, dollars I just, worth of cars. I just imagine the, the the committee coming in or whatever, and then they got the person that's in charge of this of kind of creating this illusion of demand, and they go on their Excel like Excel spreadsheet, and they just hit themselves in the head, and they're like, oh, there it is, you know, like oh, how did I miss that, you know? Yeah, it, you know, it's just all it's all just theater. Yeah, this one was like pretty obvious fraud and the probe also discovered that among other things lordstown motors paid a company to drum up around a thousand pre-orders uh now steve burns who has been called a con man or a pt barnum figure by many former employees from his time at workhorse which reminder he was ousted by the board at workhorse three months later he started lordstown motors and workhorse is now a meme stock too right this stuff is crazy yeah um but additionally, before this news came to light in the public, so before the public really knew about it, executives were selling stock. Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal reported that in all, five top executives, including the company's president and its chief former CFO, so the guy that resigned, sold more than $8 million in stock over three days in early February, according to the filings. Here's the craziest part. The stock is still flat on the year, and they just said they won't be able – to produce, they won't be in. They don't have enough money to hire people yeah, to manufacture man. the cars. It still trades at a one point eight billion dollar market cap. So how? What I don't understand is how does the SEC not do anything? It's the, the fraud so is under, over. They're so underfunded. It's been like it's been discovered that this is a fraud. I know. And now that. there's still no action. I mean, it's the golden age of fraud. Clearly, I mean. There's a lot of comparisons to the dot-com bubble, and I think the difference is right now maybe valuations aren't as crazy on some things. Obviously, Lordstown, you can't even peg something. It's just kind of like – it's almost like a cryptocurrency or like what's $10 billion versus $20 million versus $1 billion. 
But right now, compared to the dot-com bubble, and maybe I wasn't there at the dot-com bubble, so I don't know anything firsthand, but it seems like there's a lot more fraud going on nowadays. And the SEC, if they step up, they could ruin a ton of this stuff. I mean, I mean it'd yeah. be for the better. I mean, you're protecting investors and, and people in general. I think, well, so obviously Tesla actually makes cars, but they – the, the fame that Elon saw and the reputation that he gained from Tesla's rise gave way, I believe, to Trevor Milton, which gave, ra- gave way to Steve Burns, which has given mm-hmm. way to every other EV SPAC and SPAC sponsors to feel like this is a chance to cash in. Oh, yeah. And every time it happens and the SEC doesn't do anything, it's just another reason for someone to do it again. Oh, for sure. It makes every- me it, – like it honestly makes me mad thinking that Steve Burns is going to be walking around with – Mm-hmm. As a we, billionaire, we we walked, yeah, potentially a billionaire. If Probably, not, but. a lot of money. No matter how you add it up, it reminds me of what we discussed with Jamie Powell last week. I don't know, Trevor Milton and Adam Newman's kids. Adam Newman just bought a fifty million dollar property in Miami. I mean, that's infuriating stuff. I get pretty angry. I don't know. It, I think everyone does seeing this. And it all starts, I think, and people might, some people disagree. I think it all starts August 2018, like you said, the the SEC buyout tweet. And it all starts with the solar roof tile reveal and then the full self-driving fraud. Yeah, Was Elizabeth Holmes just too early? Yeah, dude, she would be cooking right now. She Madoff would be, would oh, be uh, right up there with some of the best investors in the world. Madoff and Holmes are so mu- were so much better at hiding things than Trevor Milton and Steve Burns. Milton was just it was so on Instagram fake. live. It, it was so fake. I mean, Holmes and Madoff were really like okay, they were obviously criminals and stuff like that, but they were really smart about it. They would be. I mean, yeah. dude, Holmes would have a twenty billion dollar spec on right now, which scares me. It scares me. I know it's mind blowing that. It it makes me afraid of all SPACs, to be honest. It makes it scares me off. And then when you think about the trillions of dollars, like, and I'm not trillions of dollars in crypto. I mean, you add that on top, it's like, man, there's just a lot of money floating around and Which, things that don't generate cash. I mean, now that we've seen the Lordstown Motors, we've seen Titan fall to zero. Uh, Nikola, it makes me feel yeah, it makes me feel like there might be the fallout might kind of be here. Where you can only give that mirage or that like, oh, it's coming, it's coming for so long before you have to show people cash. Yeah, there's been some good but, hints. Or go ahead. But the stock's flat. Yeah, fraud. dude. I don't know. Imagine. I can't imagine shorting this stuff. I know Muddy Waters has talked about how there's that. Uh, what was that? That Chinese education startup. I don't know much about it, but they're like, you know, they're really good at shorting Chinese companies. That one was known to be a fraud for a long time, and then it just shot up two hundred percent. And now it's down like 60%, but, you know, it was worth like zero or whatever. Yeah. One, or what was I going to say? I forgot. You you changed. Oh, okay. No, no. There's good signs with this new SEC. I don't know if it's a chairman or whatever the head of the SEC is called. There's good signs. They've been making some announcements that they want to do things, but there hasn't been really much material yet. We'll see over the next few months if they start, you know, really using their tools because, Maybe the infrastructure bill includes some funding for the SEC. <laughs> it should. I think there was like a couple, two, there was like 10, $10 billion for the IRS and they were hoping to return like $100 billion. I'm getting those numbers wrong, but like 
I was surprised. I was like, wow, $10 billion for the IRS. And they're like, well, for all the evasion of uh, taxes that we see, we could get $250 billion back on this. That kind of reminds me of what the SEC, you know, it might need a billion dollars in funding, but we might catch billions and billions of dollars worth of bad guys. It, I think that what sums it up the best is uh, that it's it's a good troll account. It's a very humorous troll account on Twitter. Nick at FDP. I'm not exactly oh, yeah. sure what his name is. He had the meme of the LeBron James and J.R. Smith, and LeBron's like looking at J.R. Smith, and LeBron is everyone, and the SEC is J.R. Smith. It's like, yeah. do something. It's right there. It's it's weird because it used to be the uh, there's like the quote that it's always the autopsy, never the diagnosis. Now there's not even the autopsy. It's being diagnosed. The fraud's right there and no one's acting. It's in, it's crazy. It's crazy. All right. Well, what's your uh, next story? Okay. This should be a fun one. I didn't have any notes here, but uh, uh, someone tweeted out a list of a thousand beggars over the last four decades. I'll let you pull it up and we can talk about any surprises, lessons, or patterns that we're seeing here. Let me click the tweet. So we got, let me read it off. And this is going from best to worst. We have, uh, and worst is you know, still extremely good, a thousand bagger. We have Monster Beverage, Expel, Amazon, Microsoft Corporation, Tractor Supply, Apple, Adobe, Jack Henry and Associates. Never heard of that one. Uh, Oracle, The Home Depot, Biogen, and then Berkshire Hathaway sneaks in from 1980 to 2021, thousand bagger. They're starting at a pretty high multiple, but any surprises here? Um, any thoughts? Any What's Jack Henry and Associates? I don't know. I should look it up quick, but I haven't heard of them. Hmm. Uh, surprises? No, I'd heard about Monster before. I'd heard about Expel. Uh, obviously, it's not a surprise that Amazon and Microsoft are there. And this um, is over the last four decades, so there's some earlier ones, you know, that, that ain't yeah. getting clear. Oracle's a bit of a surprise, but I guess they were if you're capturing that from, if you're capturing that from, like, mm-hmm. I guess it depends at what life, uh, what stage in their life cycle they IPO'd. But. Well, they they IPO'd in '87, so their whole public company life cycle. In the '90s, okay. they were a monster in the '90s, so that makes sense. Same with uh, Biogen in '94. Um, Expel and Monster though were fascinating. Expel is only from 2011. It was a tiny micro cap, and they do stuff with automobiles. And now, what do they do exactly? Uh, it's something with paint. I looked it up once, but I, I've never taken a deeper dive. Three twenty nine hundred bagger, and it's CAGR, which is compound annual growth rate from twenty eleven to now, so June twenty twenty one, hundred twenty two percent, which is in blows pie everything else on this list. The highest, the other highest one would be Tractor Supply and Monster Beverage at forty one percent. Jeez, I mean that's, that's crazy, right? I don't know. Tractor Supply is impressive too, from two thousand to twenty twenty one. 41% cash. I'm willing to bet that that 1,000 bagger or that 2,900 bagger from Expel didn't start with them at a sales multiple above 40. No, I'm guessing it was probably like 0.2. It had to be huge multiple expansion here. Yeah, I have to imagine that a lot of that came from just the multiple expanding. Um, but I mean, you, mo- but the best ones, though, are just the, the you hop on. I mean, Walmart would be on here if you went earlier. Coca Cola would be on here if you went earlier. McDonald's would be on here if you went earlier. A lot of them are just businesses people know, and you buy and hold for three, four decades. Yeah, easier said than done. It's 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 difficult for sure. I mean, Amazon. I mean, you're holding through that ninety five percent drawdown. Yeah, 
I'll uh, I'll get to my anecdotal evidence, which is my next story. I haven't really done one of these in a while, so this will be kind of fun. But I think Zinn is the new Marlboro. Uh, I'm not even sure that's really a hot take. But I was in Cabo and feels like everywhere I go, I see it as sort of the new form of nicotine consumption. Yeah. Yeah. People and I agree. Especially now that smoking – uh, or even chewing tobacco because you kind of have to spit into whatever a cup or something is really frowned upon in public. Yeah, chewing tobacco is like not as unhealthy as smoking cigarettes, but people think it's gross, and you know yeah. a lot of people don't want to do it and look gross. Whereas Zen, uh, you don't have to spit, and so people can kind of sneak it. Yeah. Um, and obviously, smoking cigarettes isn't really as accepted. Like in most, in most indoor places yeah. now. Downside though, my friend told me that, and he's a Zin user, and he says, I wake up in the morning and my mouth is so dry until I have a Zin. So I, there might be a negative side effect. That's just one person. But, yeah, you know. Although I've also, and I think the brand part matters too, because people are, it's they're always asking for Zin. They're not asking for like mm-hmm. oral nicotine. Yep. It's, it's almost like a verb at this point. Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, Swedish, the it's by Swedish Match. Uh, I've been researching them. I guess that's kind of what brought us on our radar. We've been seeing someone was tweeting about it. Uh, There's also a reward system that seems that people seem to be like. So you you can take a picture of your Zen can or scan a code and earn rewards. The people seem to be all over that as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's yeah. just a college thing. Maybe it's a phase. But yeah, do you worry? It's all like it's like jewel at all. Yeah, potentially, but but Jules still less, doing so. Oral nicotine seems less fragmented than e vapor products. That's true. Than e vapor products. Yeah, that's definitely true. E vapor has a lot of just random companies hopping in. It's a lot. It's different with nicotine pouches. There seems to be only four or five players, and Zinn has, I believe, seventy five percent market share in the U.S. So right now they're dominant. They'll probably lose a lot of that. But, I mean, that's still 75%. It's huge. Yeah. All right. Uh, how many more stories do you have? Just I one? have one more. Okay. We'll end with a fun one, the passive income crazy takes. I know you were on vacation, so you may not have seen these. But I saw them. Yeah, I guess that it, it was hard not to see them if you just went on the Twitter machine. So there were people that were talking about, you know, the passive income people. Uh, they're a bit much, but they, they, have, you know, they have some good ideas. Try to get your money working for you. But... A few of them may have taken things too far when they said they would rather take $50 a month for the rest of their life instead of $1 million now. Now, if we think the S&P 500 even had as low as a 1% dividend yield, which is like at all-time lows, that would be, if I'm getting the numbers right, 10000 in dividend a incomes a year. A year. So like, like, yeah. per month, just way, way higher than 50 bucks a month if you put all your million dollars in, into the into an index fund. Um, there's also something about planting a tomato farm as okay. an argument here. I that do, one was a little crazy. I do hate to say it uh, to defeat your point here, but that was a guy trolling. And I know that guy has had some bad takes in the past, but no, he, no, he, he came out after and was like, look, yeah, yeah. I trolled all of Twitter. Yes, he said that, but no. No way he wasn't serious. There's no way anyone – I mean it's a million dollars. You can invest in the 10-year and get a better return than 50 bucks a month. It's un, Okay. We, yeah, we don't know if he was trolling or not. I tend to think with his past 
um, ideas that he was not trolling. But I guess we'll never know inside of, inside of his mind. And then there, I guess there was also a financial guru, one of those people that sells the services, um, which I really do not like those things that, you know, it's not like investing services or anything like that. It's almost like you pay me money, I get your life right type of deals. Um, they said $20 million wasn't enough money to live off of. So that was another crazy take. Maybe these people are just doing things to get, they're probably just doing them to get likes or whatever, but that's these financial community people, they just grab my gears. Top five things you see at the peak of a bull market. These things, I mean, not the passive things, but that no, is. No, the $20 yeah. million isn't enough. Yeah, that's absolutely I mean, insane. It's, and whose world is that not enough? <laughs> no one's world. I mean, all right, here, here's a question I want, though, that I think would be fun to talk about. At what money amount for the one-time payment would you switch to the $50 a month? I think I would, if it was like 50K, I would consider switching to the $50 a month for the rest of my life. Something like that. Uh, I don't know. You could sit down and you could do the, do the math. What's the risk-free rate right now? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, risk-free rates may, I mean, that's not, that's, that's the risk-free rate right now. That's not the risk-free rate your whole life. And you have to ask yourself, what are you going to do with the 50K? Well, I have plenty of time, so I'll take 50K in the S&P right now for $50 for the rest of it. Maybe. I don't know. You get, you'd really take $50 for the rest of your life every month instead of $50,000 right now. I think that's where I'd consider changing. Because 50K, you know, it's a lot, but it's not like something you can take and do a ton with instead of just putting it in some index fund. May, I, you know, maybe you can make some investments, but that's yeah, still take tied 50K up. Take 50K at that point, I think. Just do uh, the average 9.8% a year, you know. That's, <laughs> that's also an assumption. That is an assumption, but I don't, I, I'm reluctant to choose fifty dollars a month at that okay, point. Okay, well, how low would I have to go? I don't know. Probably well, ten to twenty thousand. You're thinking it has to go as low as twenty thousand. How long does it take you fifty dollars a month to get ten thousand dollars? How many uh, months? It would take about ten years, a little less than ten years. All right, it's all mental math. I think that might be wrong. Fifty? Oh no, sorry, twenty years, a little less than twenty years. Yeah, double it. Yeah, I might take the twenty thousand. All right, but that's fifty k is too high. Yeah, I think that's gonna do it. Uh, unless you have any more stories. Nope. All right, uh, that is gonna do it. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Sleepwell Capital, for joining us. We want to remind you that we are general partners at Arch Capital. Clients may have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. Uh, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.